Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. As always, we are grateful that you're joining us. I am Matt Harris. Seton Tucker's here. We're in studio with Dwayne, our producer. And the Murdoch saga continues. It still has legs. A lot of questions still that we'll try to get to as we work our way through the story. We're going to be joined by Chanley Painter of Court TV a little bit later in this episode. And uh, she will talk about some of the great interviews that she has landed over the last week since the verdict came back. It seems like forever ago, doesn't it, that the verdict was? But I know. It's, it's hard to believe it's only been a week. It's been a week. But I thought I, the same thing. Like, wow, it seems like a long time ago. I know. I've just been playing catch up with my personal life this week. Yes. Your husband got to see you, actually, a few times. Yes. yes. The first thing we want to start with that has come out since the verdict was the article in the New York Times written by Nicholas. Burroughs. And it is about Randy Murdoch and a conversation that Randy and Nicholas had. This was a really interesting article in it. He says that Randy has no doubt that his brother was a serial liar and thief. Mm-hmm. Um, he also believed that Alec had not told the whole truth about what he knows about the killings. And let me give you, uh, I'll read from the New York Times article. Uh, but asked directly whether he thought his brother carried out the murders, he said he still did not know. As a lawyer, he said, he respects the jury's verdict, but he finds it impossible to picture Alec, a man he has known for decades as a protective husband and father, pulling the trigger and inflicting the carnage that prosecutors described as a crime of cold calculation. He knows more than what he's saying, Randy said. He's not telling the truth, in my opinion, about everything there. Now, I want to point out a couple of things. Randy is two years older than Alec. He is also Randolph Murdoch IV. Yes, and he works for the law firm where Alec was previously employed. And he says he hasn't talked to his brother in a year. In a year, yes, yes. And I, I said this on Court TV the other night. If any of the Murdochs would feel most bothered or hurt, by what happened, it has to be him, right? His, his, name, his namesakes are the three generations before, picture in the courthouse, they started the law firm, they were solicitors for 100 years, and because he, he's Randolph Murdoch IV, he worked an office down or two offices down from his younger brother, and his younger brother caused that whole name and that whole law firm to collapse. So not only costing Randy financial problems and issues that he had to pay for. But Randy, by all accounts, was the studious one, the one that was you know, not into the party and whatever, straight-laced dude. Uh, and his whole Randolph Murdoch IV, law firm, everything, bam, boom, done. And I actually spoke with him briefly on the corner when I was crossing the street to go back into the courthouse. And he, he, he seems to be a really nice guy. We met him one time at the, the law firm and he Came yeah, down and he, said hi to us. Yeah, he seems to be a nice guy. And, you know, again, the, the family really has received a very bad rap by Alec. And, of course, people are going to think bad about that name now. Another thing about Randy as opposed to John Marvin, because John Marvin doesn't work in law. So he rents, you know, heavy equipment, things like that. So he's not directly 
tied to Alec in the way of the law and everything else. And he doesn't have to clean up Alec's mess, which is Randy is now doing. He has to go to court for these people and make these people whole. Yeah, and it was interesting to watch because Jordan Marvin was there every day, as was Buster, but Randy did not attend all the days of the trial. And I think this article mentions that one of the days he was actually in court for one of Elk's previous clients. He was indeed. He was uh, working in a nearby courthouse at the same time. It says here he's taking on a few of his brother's former clients. He says that he tells them, listen, I'm not him. I'm doing things the right way. Always have, he tells clients. I don't beat around the bush. And so he's in these you know, empty courthouses where all this, the circus is in the other plane because of his brother. So it's got to hurt him a lot. And I think more personal than maybe Alec's brother and sister. Uh, one of the other things he says in the New York Times article, I hoped that after the trial, because there's nothing more that can be presented, that I'd stop thinking about this. But so far... That's not been the case. And I think he's trying to distance himself from Alec and his misdeeds. But also, he doesn't go as far as saying that he believes his brother was the murderer of his wife and son. He does, in fact, yeah, he, does, he doubts it, he says. And one thing I also want to point out, because he does get into distancing himself by saying you know, how bad Alec is. He says, uh, the quote from the paper, Randy said... He also began to think back on Alec's behavior in the first few weeks after the murders. At the time, it seemed like the police had few leads, and Randy began to call just about everyone he thought might help, asking if they had heard anything to, to suggest why Maggie and Paul might have been targeted. He passed on whatever he heard to the police. And here's his quote. I spent considerable time, day after day, for weeks on end, calling people. But Alec, he said, never did. Maggie's sister testified at the trial to the same effect saying she found it odd that Alec never talked about who might have been the killer. He did tell her, she said, that he imagined whoever had done so had thought about it for a long time. That is interesting. Well, that's what Alec said on the stand as well. That he didn't search for who did it. No, that he, he thought that whoever did it had thought about it oh, yeah. for a, a long time. That fact that he didn't seem to be aggressively trying to figure out who did it has to raise your eyebrow or eyebrows, raise questions. Absolutely. Now, after the uh, Randy thing, let's stick with the family, why don't we? Yeah, let's talk about Buster. Go ahead, you got it. So Buster has filed a police report. Uh, I guess a photographer was trying to take photos inside his home, peering through blinds. They asked the Buford County Sheriff's Office that they help out. And his girlfriend, Brooklyn, who was, at the, was with Buster, every day at the courthouse. The one guy that is a, they say he's a uh, YouTube true crime guy um, that she specifically called out. This guy was peering into their car parked outside the home. I mean, that's extreme. Yes. And looking at this blind is even more extreme. Did you see the video of somebody yelling at Alec as he was exiting the courthouse saying Buster is next, yes. Buster is next? and you know, to this date, Buster has not been charged with any crime. No. He's not been in, brought in for questioning in any crime. He's not been listed as a suspect in any crime. Yeah, he's been mentioned in regards to the Stephen Smith, but there haven't been any charges, so... He's been mentioned, and at this point, it's all just gossip yeah. about his relationship with Stephen Smith. You know, we heard from Griffin and Harputlian that the family was 
you know, steadfast and they were standing by Alec. You know, maybe Randy's comments, he's not standing by as much as the other family members, but Buster hasn't come out and issued any sort of public statement. No. If you want to go way, way back, there was one of the British tabloids, I believe, that Buster was quoted as saying, I don't want you to say that I support my father, but that was a gazillion years ago. Yeah, that was in the Daily Mail. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of people that are being followed or harassed or whatever you want to call it, uh, what do we have here, Seton? The, I guess she's referred to as the egg juror, the, the woman who was dismissed, has issued a statement for the press. Uh, Joe McCullough is representing her and says, I am reaching out to the press and public today on behalf of Juror 785, who was excused from the jury in the state versus Murdoch case just prior to deliberations. I'm requesting that everyone respect her privacy at both her home and her place of work. Other jurors have chosen to comment, which is their prerogative. That is not her desire at this time. Given her public service for the weeks of trial, she earned through her public service the right to have her wishes respected. She wishes you to know that she took the juror oath and all the subsequent court's instructions seriously and believes she followed them appropriately. She now wishes freedom from contact and harassment and requests that efforts to contact her at her home or work come to an immediate end. In that regard, we've requested the assistance of the Colleton County Sheriff's Department. All further questions can be directed to my office, and that is from Joe McCullough. And Joe McCullough, we've received a lot of questions about who the man was with the white hair that you could see. That is Joe McCullough, who also represents Connor Cook in the boating crash litigation. I also want to talk about the question we've had. So we had the question, who's the guy in the white hair? The other one was, who's the guy who's dapper dressed? It's always behind either a row or two behind Alec Murdoch. And the Daily Beast and others did a story about him. He had the big yellow suit on one day. He had close cropped hair, glasses, try to describe him to you. I never spoke to him personally, but I did see him actually go up to a group of students who were there to watch the trial and speak to them. Lots of emails about him. His name's Wendell Butterfield. He's 80 years old, South Carolina state constable with over 50 years of law enforcement experience. He wasn't just a spectator. The former judge, who also was a doctorate in theology, had a job to do. He was security for Judge Clifton Newman, court of clerk Becky Hill, and the court reporters. Uh, so Butterfield's stoic presence, it says here in the article, caught the attention of viewers watching the proceedings online. People had asked on Twitter, who's going to play him? Should it be Clint Eastwood? That kind of thing. Uh, he agreed to doing this job weeks before the trial, and he told the Daily Beast he was shocked to learn that the clothes his wife picked out for him got so much attention. He said he wasn't thinking about the outfits. He had a job to do, and uh, that is who he is. He takes pride in the uniform and the looks and always was immaculately dressed. And that uh, jumped out to a lot of people. Another interesting thing we should point out that has come out has been, well, he talked a lot. The juror, James McDowell, he's done a lot of interviews. He oftentimes wears a red, white, and blue constitution tie. And was also immaculately dressed throughout this trial. The... Juror James McDowell, also, he had a nickname by the people in the media, Sherlock. Yes. Because he, he was intense. 
He was like, intense. And he was you paying know, attention. As jurors got dismissed, did you notice he sat on that top row and he had two seats between him? Yep. I yep. mean, people, it, it, he did look, he was intense and you couldn't tell if he was angry. Right. That he was having to sit there for six weeks. I yes. don't know. And somebody said he was sitting apart from all the other jurors because of COVID. He didn't want to be close to him, but I don't know how. Oh, is that what that. it was? Because he did have two seats between him. Yes. That's what someone said. I have no idea if that's fact or not. However, the, the, the point of James McDowell being brought up right now is his relationship to Colleton County Sheriff's Corporal Chad McDowell, who was the second deputy to arrive at the crime scene in June of 2021. He was the one that Alec asked, how you doing? And his brother thought that that was an odd statement in the midst of finding your wife and son murdered. Yes. The jurors watched the footage from his body camera, which showed Maggie and Paul near the kennels. And you talked to some attorneys uh, were wondering why he was even on the jury. And by the way, he was an alternate and then he got put into the, the full jury. Yeah, I've spoken to several South Carolina attorneys that were surprised that this particular juror was not dismissed before cause. And then why the defense team didn't use one of their strikes. Especially since they were putting law enforcement through this, this gauntlet of you guys are making mistakes, you guys are making mistakes. Yeah, that was a big tenet of the defense's defense. Right, right. Uh, all right, let's uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, she's the murder crush of many. She is Chanley Painter from Court TV, and she announced some really big interviews uh, this past week dealing with this case, and some really surprising things came out. We will talk to her next. And now, she's amazing. We are joined by Court TV journalist, reporter. She's an attorney. She's a former prosecutor. She plays the fiddle. She can eat like a giant steak and french fries and an ice cream sundae in one sitting. She is Chanley Painter. Hi, Chanley. <laughs> Great to be with you guys. Hey, thanks for having me. You, you've had me on Court TV so many nights. It's the least we could do. Thank <laughs> you again for coming on. And I kind of wanted to start by asking you, how different was Walterboro this week compared to last week? A lot different. I mean, I think maybe by Saturday, Sunday, that courthouse had been cleared. It wasn't until maybe Monday that the deputies removed the barriers, the metal barriers from out front. You could see them all kind of piled up on, on Tuesday night when we were out there again. But yeah, it quickly cleared up. Uh, the media mayhem that was out front for six weeks uh, was quickly gone. Well, the, the beauty is that you stayed behind and you, you, you hustled. You hustled and got we some did. great yes. interviews. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Where do we start? <laughs> Talk with the, <laughs> the nail tech. The nail tech. Yes. You spoke with the nail tech. And what were your big takeaways from that? She was interview? Maggie's nail tech. We should yes. point out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Maggie's nail tech the, yes. the, and who did her nails the day of the murders. Well, well, actually, Erin did her nails a week before her murder. So Erin's based oh. in Edisto. That's where Maggie would go to her to get her nails done. The day of her murder, she actually was in Charleston or somewhere else out of town and just went yeah. for a pedicure the day of her murder. That's so she right, had her nails done right. a week okay. before and then a pedicure the day of her murder. But yes, yeah, so Erin was the last person to do her nails and she uh, talks to me about she she felt like during the trial, Maggie really wasn't represented in who she was as a person and what she enjoyed doing and that kind of disappeared 
pointed her, so she wanted to talk more about who she knew as Maggie, as a, who she called a wonderful person, loved dogs, loved her, talked about Paul and Buster all the time, and just a real, you know, real, well, real person. And she said about a week before, she came in for a manicure, and she remembers the color, Cajun shrimp. I don't know if you're familiar with the nail polish colors, but uh, she painted her nails Cajun shrimp, and Maggie confided in her, according to Aaron, that she was looking into a divorce from Alec Murdoch and that she also had hired some uh, accountant to go over some suspicions she had about funds and that she wasn't really getting the full story of of the money uh, that was being spent. And and so she wanted to look into that. So that was the key takeaway of this nail tech. Of course, I asked her, she said she was interviewed by SLED a couple of times after Maggie's murder. She was subpoenaed to be a witness. She showed me her subpoena. Ultimately, she wasn't called, and she believes it's because the defense would try to make her out as a liar. Uh, and uh, so she was actually relieved that she wasn't called. She did not uh, want to take the stand. Which Maggie told her, you're the attorney. Is that hearsay? Would she even be allowed to say? Well, I think it could have come in under an exception to hearsay, but... Um, but I believe, so I asked Creighton about this when I sat down with him as well, and he echoed the same thing she said. She did. Creighton believed they didn't quite need um, her testimony in the case and that he believed that the defense would have painted her as someone making this up yeah. because they couldn't, they wanted to corroborate her testimony in some way, like someone that overheard the conversation in addition to her, um, and they didn't quite have that at the time. So they felt they would just forego, but it was, she definitely was a legitimate witness and something they really considered uh, putting before the jury. Mm. Yeah. So let's move on to Creighton. Yeah. Since you mentioned him, uh, yeah. you, you had both Creighton and uh, the South Carolina attorney general Wilson on with you uh, at, at one point. Yes. You know, they, they are kind of rock stars after the verdict <laughs> no. came in aren't they creighton is actually a they rock star yeah, he plays guitar, <laughs> he, plays guitar. Yeah. he literally is yes he was he talked to me about being a musician and playing guitar and he actually he has a gig coming up uh he said everyone's invited he'll be putting that out there uh, <laughs> his gig it's gonna be a sellout and, oh yeah oh yeah he has a lot of people saying that they want to attend his gig and he looks forward to, to being back you know having time to play some music he and of course his, his boss ag wilson really doing a victory lap after the verdict and the sentencing that went their way, all the hard work that they um, had, really the whole team. I actually sat down with probably about a dozen prosecutors from that office, plus the paralegals, the investigator, all of those individuals you see sitting on the prosecution side of the courtroom at prosecution table and behind them. I basically sat down with all of them on Tuesday to get their insights because they each had a, a different job on the team. Like one of the attorneys, his focus was just to dissect the cell phone records and put that together. Another was just to focus on the ballistics and the firearm evidence and put that part piece together. Another was the financial crimes. And so it was interesting to delve in to pick their brains a little bit of their expertise on those areas of this case and learning some interesting facts like the attorney who, who, focused on firearms and ballistics, believes that probably these weapons were hidden and moved around when Alec returned to the property, his mom's property, when he was moving around there. It's probably They're probably in the bottom of a swamp somewhere, is what he told me. Mm. I asked I asked an attorney about who handled the, the financials and the accounts 
which are still pending. So he says, I said, where's all this money? And he told me that, of course, they made a strategic decision not to go into the weeds in this trial. They kept it big picture. They have, of right. course, more details about where the money actually went from their forensic accounting. But they're waiting, uh, preserving that for the financial crimes case against him. So they do know where all of it is gone. Mm. Oh, we'll have wow. to wait and see, he says. Uh, as they pursue the other pending 99-some charges against Alec Murdoch. So just interesting insights like that coming out. That's the big question everyone wants to know. So I think people are going to be sitting on the edge of their seats for that. You might have to come back to South Carolina for that part of the the next trial. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Also, let's, oh, you've talked to... Jim Griffin. Yep. Yes, I did. One of the very few interviews that he's given after the verdict and sentencing he sat down with me until he got a phone call from alec murdoch oh wow <laughs> so really? that end that ended my interview um well it was still about 15 minutes with him but yeah so he had to take a call from alec who's in prison uh, and he would obviously let me stay in the room for that conversation but um he has been in touch with alec he's in protective custody he talks to me, Griffin, about his reaction, the disappointment to the verdict and the sentencing. And there's some key takeaways from his um, interview. He says he doesn't regret putting Alec Murdoch on the witness stand. He also says that once they learned that the judge was going to open the floodgates on the financial mm-hmm. crimes, allow all of that in, he said that's when we knew we were going to lose this case. And that's pretty early on, first week or two, yeah, right? Right. And uh, he's, I asked him if, you know, if he regretted requesting the jury view because a lot of the jurors who have spoken afterwards have pointed to that as really key for helping them put some of the pieces together, pro-prosecution side, of course. And he says he doesn't regret doing that. He thinks, you know, all of that should be before a jury to make a decision. He talks about the Kennel video. He thinks that video that was on Paul's phone minutes before prosecutors say they were murdered it's actually helpful to the defense because it does it doesn't show a family fighting or yelling at each other and to him from the defense perspective it just really uh, is unreasonable to believe that a man in in that type of tone and situation with his family within just you know minutes could execute them in the way that they were so those are just some key t- key takeaways i saw the uh interview of course i was on the night we talked we I think uh, Bland was on with me, Eric Bland, and we talked about your interview, which was great. There's no question in my mind, and you were right eye to eye with him, Jim Griffin does not believe that Alec Murdoch committed those murders. He can tell it in his face and in his tone. And I, did he say to you, I, I, I think he said to you that he wouldn't even have taken the case if he thought Alec had done it. Exactly, because he represented... Paul, too, you know, when Paul was arrested for the boating incident, he believes Paul was, he said there's ample evidence to show Paul was not driving the boat at the time. He brought that up briefly. And then, you know, I asked, is it, is it difficult, weird? I mean, you're, you were representing Paul. Now he's the victim and you're representing his alleged murderer. How do you, you know, even put that together? And that's when he said, and I would not be here. I would not be speaking for Paul representing Alec. If I did not believe 100% he did not do this even after this case. And so and that speaks volumes. And it also speaks volumes that he's going to stay on the case. A lot of times attorneys pass it off to an appellate lawyer sure. and they see it through from here on out. But no, he says that he's going to stay on the case. 
um, till it's done, done. Well, and he's received a lot of backlash purely for representing him. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He told me uh, he I believe there was one quote from the interview where he talks about uh, the attention he's been getting. And just he said just this morning, you know, my phone is blowing up. I have 30 unread messages. Some, you know, very few are saying something in support. The rest are wishing my death. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. Like it's that. ridiculous. Like, That's awful. Uh, the it's awful. That, it, Twitter is a terrible place. The things that you read on Twitter are just <laughs> insane. The last uh, interview, and then we'll let you go, you had was with the, the, the two Colleton County law enforcement officers. Were they first responders? They were early on at the scene, right? They were. They responded to the scene. These are Colleton County Sheriff's deputies. And so... The sheriff's department, of course, was at the scene, had it, and then around 30 minutes in, I believe, something like that, they passed off the sled. So, you know, any of the decisions made from, you know, when sled took over on out, you know, they could try to speak to, but they were more wanting to speak to how they responded to the scene that night. And then the perception that the defense kept trying to put out there of the missteps, uh, the evidence left behind, just the sloppy investigation. That was the defense theme, as you know. The hair and in so they wanted to hand. Sit- Yes, they wanted to sit down and just address all that. Yes, they wanted to say what they could not say, or they were hoping to be recalled to say on the stand. So we got to hear it afterwards, and they say that the bloody footprint the defense kept trying to bring up, that was that was left when the scene was cleared, and they were removing Paul's body to take for autopsy, and that, that was when that bloody footprint was left. And then the hair in Maggie's hands, uh, Deputy Rutland said that she you know examined Maggie's body, and there was uh, similar hairs, you know, I guess I saw Maggie's head, you know, at the last shot, you know, kind of caused hair to kind of be all over her body, including mm. on her hand. And it all matched. And it was, it was obviously to detective Rutland, Maggie's hair, uh, <laughs> from her head. Yeah. And so she doesn't know whether or not it was, you know, taken into evidence or tested, you know, after sled took over, but she can say that she is 100% sure that it was obvious. It was Maggie's hair in her own hands, but yet the defense mm. throws it out there in a case trying to, of course, use anything they can without telling a complete story, according to these deputies. And they also mentioned a possible other person helping with the cleanup. One of the first responders, I think, yeah. said that in that interview. Oh, yeah, did. That they yeah. believe that there was maybe yes. someone who came in and helped I, clean up. Yes. I tried to dig in. I was like, name some names for me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they didn't want to, you know, be sued or anything uh, by naming names. But, yes, it was very clear. They said they believe that Alec Murdoch is the sole person responsible for the executions, but they believe he had help in disposing of the bloody clothes, the murder weapons, the stories, all of that is clear that, that he had some, some people that knew what had been done and helped him cover it up and are still protecting him. You are the best Chanley. I'm going to miss our time. You're together. the best. Yes. Well, we're going to be in touch. You're not rid of me. I hope not. <laughs> we're friends for life. <laughs> there you go. Usually people distance themselves very quickly from me. <laughs> especially real smart cute people um shanley thank you so much of course if they want to see all this stuff the you know go to court tv's uh the app or dot com right do you have anything uh planned coming up that you want to plug any specials any moments you want to uh hit I mean, sure, we're working on, we're going to be putting together a special on the Murdoch, uh, like an hour-long special, but I'm actually off next. I will be in Moscow, Idaho, Monday, 
working on an hour-long special on the four college students who were brutally murdered, mm. putting that together for our viewers. I don't even like to say the defendant's name. Right. I know he's innocent until proven guilty, but I think well, everyone knows who we're talking about, and yep. we're going to be focusing on the victims and the life that they lived. That's so, so great. That's coming up next. So great. Uh, well, tell uh, Vinny I said hey. I will. All right. We'll see you on soon. See you, Chandley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. She's great, isn't she? Great. Uh, let's see. A couple other things to mention. Well, one big thing to mention is... Alec Murdoch has filed the notice of intention to appeal. And we will try to dig deeper into that Another uh, in one of our episodes coming up. I do want to read an email to you. Uh, this is from... Uh, I'm going to get his name. It's uh, David. And here's the thing. He's from Sweden. He says, first off, I just want to say, and this might sound weird, no, it won't. Uh, I've been listening to you for going on two years now, and I really miss you guys. Thank you. An end of the era type of thing. We're not done yet. Hope you guys continue as a duo covering other cases. I like that you're two regular folk discussing and then bringing in the experts for their take. Plus, you guys have voices that are pleasant on the ear. Oh, we've gotten a lot of questions from people saying they're sad that this is coming to an end. Right. I know we don't have a lot of emails that's saying we're pleasant to the ear. <laughs> <laughs> Remember way back when, what was the one that you like to mock me about that I sounded like? A chain-smoking crackhead or something yes, along those yes, lines. Yes, yes, that was me. Um, and so uh, he goes on. So the second part of why I'm writing, I'm having a real problem with the motive. I know the state doesn't have to prove motive, but Alec murders wife and son, quote, to garner sympathy for the impending financial crimes. I mean, a lawyer thinking that, quote, if I kill my wife and son, maybe they'll go easy on me. I don't know. Maybe this is what a lifetime of privilege teaches you. Anything to keep the facade up. I'm from Sweden, so I just wanted to uh, let you know here my take on the motive. And to me, it just doesn't make any sense. In my opinion, there had to be something else that happened behind the scenes, maybe drug-related. I don't doubt that he's guilty, but a lot of it doesn't make sense. Take care, David. Yeah, thank you, David. You're not the only one that yeah. has wondered about that. Yeah, we've, we've had a lot of emails uh, comments on our Facebook page, which I have lost the ability to respond to this. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm probably about 50 emails left to get to. I'm, I'm working through it, man. Uh, another email from Natalie from Brooklyn. Thank you for the, all the updates. I love listening to you and Seton. Last week, my husband read the New York Times banner off his Apple Watch about the guilty verdict, and I freaked out. Now my husband thinks I'm a maniac because he had no idea I was following the story through your podcast. <laughs> anyway, keep up the good work, and thanks for keeping me awake while I'm driving. Thank you, Natalie. And I was actually at the dermatologist this week, and the person I see said, what am I going to do now? I don't have you to listen. And I was like, well, maybe we'll do another one. Yes, we've got a, this Murdoch still has a few legs. We are efforting a couple other cases, trying to get line up some people. So yeah, I don't think we'll be disappearing that quickly. Um, Seton has put up with me for almost two years now. That is shocking. <laughs> <laughs> that is really shocking. Well, ditto. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'd love it if you would share the episode, rate it, a positive comment helps our, our ratings as well. And uh, you can catch me on the Matt and Ramona show in Charlotte, a mix 1079, weekday 6 to 10. And you can also reach out where do they find us, Seton. You can find us on Facebook, which is Murdoch Podcast, or on our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com. And an email to MattHarrisPodcast at gmail.com would do the trick, too. So if you have a case you're uh, interested in, who knows? Send us a little uh, note, and we'll talk soon, friend.
From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.